everyone. Uh, my name is Will. Glad to see you and meet you all here today. Uh, we are continuing along in a series looking at uh, the life of Abraham and trying to uh, see how God spoke into this uh, father figure, this sort of giant of faith and all the turmoil and the testing and all the struggles that he went through and to learn about how God worked in a man thousands of years ago and how that same God will work in us in a very similar way to bring about faithfulness, to further his kingdom and his vision. And so we're continuing this series called The Life of Abraham. And today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting with verse 10. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. This is God's word for us today. Now there is a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dwelt, he dealt with, well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you... Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And this is God's word. You can go ahead and take your seats. <clears throat> well, we began the series in Genesis 12, and it started off strong where you have Father Abraham showing his faithfulness and his godliness, pursuing a new vision, not just for his life, but a vision for humanity, simply by the promises of God. And if you think about this, he left his home, he left his inheritance, he left his culture, he went on this long journey simply because God said, I have a greater vision and plan for you. That's Father Abraham, a man of faith. But then you quickly turn to the verses that we looked at, and this guy, Abraham, who had so much faith, all of a sudden seems to have no faith, seems to be selfish and self-centric, willing to sacrifice his wife for his own personal good. It's almost as if this guy went from the greatest example of faith to the greatest example of faithlessness. And one of the lessons that we can learn here today is that Abraham may represent you and me, that life has its swings up and down. You go from faithfulness to faithlessness. For those of us who go to retreats, you're on fire for God, but then the next week you forget God once you go back to school. And here what we have in Abraham is a picture of broken faith, an honest, realistic picture, because your life is like that too. Sometimes we're doing well with the Lord, and the next moment we make decisions about our lives where God seems completely absent. We seek to live faithfully, we read the Bible, we pray, but other times we live autonomously, self-centrically. And Abraham has lessons for us because the Bible and Christianity is honest about that. 
even though Abraham is a father figure of faith, he's recognized, we recognize that there's a lot of faithlessness, there's brokenness, there's setbacks, there's turns in his life that you and I can relate to because we all know that we're not always perfect in our faith. And so what we look at here in these verses, what we see here is that in the journey of Abraham's life, God is sending tests and suffering and setbacks to really discern and to grow Abraham's faith. And that means if the greatest father figure in the Old Testament that represents faith, if God will test Abraham, that means he'll certainly test you and me, test in your life. And that's what I want to look at here today on this journey that we call life. Three things to learn about testing when you go down these verses in 10 to 20. One, we can just simply say God will test everyone, especially his church. If God tests Abraham, he's going to test you too. Secondly, when you look at Abraham, the greatest human example of faith, we realize that even the best of us will stumble in our faith. And then thirdly, we'll see that God will always, in his typical way, use surprising ways to continue his plan. So one, God will test each and every one of you. Secondly, in Abraham, we'll see that the best of us will stumble in our faith. Sometimes we live as if God doesn't matter. But thirdly, because God is faithful, he'll use surprising ways to continue his plan. So let's look at this together. First, God will test everyone. He'll test Abraham, he'll test you and me. Now Abraham, if you remember the story, began his journey from Genesis 12 verse 1, and God says, I'm going to give you three things, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give you descendants and a seed. He's going to give you family, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a great, powerful nation. Three things that God promises Abraham. So what does he do? Abraham leaves everything, a man of faith. He goes on this journey, and some commentators say that he went for 800 miles on the back of donkeys and camels. Imagine how long that took. Now, here's the funny thing. When you go to our verses, the narrator, the author, Moses, he moves a, narr- he moves a, he moves a story quickly. So after journeying one after the other, city after city, in verse 10, it gives you a bleak picture. Abraham finally gets to the promised land in Canaan, and what does it say in verse 10? Now there is a famine in the land. Succinct, quick, now there's a famine in the land. Now think about this for a moment. You left everything. God said, I'm going to give you this wonderful land. You're going to own it. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars, which comes later in Genesis. And you finally go there after 800 miles or so, traveling on the back of a camel or donkey. And once you get there, you can't even possess it. The Canaanites are still there. It's not flowing with milk and honey. And all you have in verse 10, now there's a famine in the land. It's abrupt. It's harsh. It's disappointing. You know, even in our day, when we go somewhere for vacation in the hotel, in the area, in the beach, is not as nice as what? No, we get, we get entitled. We get angry about this. We, get, we, we become assertive, or we begin to cry out of desperation. Think about this, a life of new humanity, now there's a famine in the land. How discouraging was this for Abraham? Just imagine if you were in his shoes. You can't occupy it, and there's famine. You're probably thinking Abraham did, or maybe you would be if you were Abraham, is this real? God, I left everything, and this is what you do. Do you know why this is happening? Because God is testing Abraham. What do you do, friends, when the promise of your faith doesn't resonate with what you see in the reality of the world? You know, you you preach from the pulpit, you'll be fulfilled. Jesus is better. You're satisfied. 
You know, it's the key to making your marriage thrive. It's to say that Jesus is better than academics and money and power, but when you do well in academics and you succeed at work, it seems to feel so much better than being in this relationship with Jesus. What do you do when the promises of your faith don't resonate or align with the realities of your world? It may be because God is testing the sincerity of your faith. God is testing Abraham. Now, when you talk about a test here, we don't like tests, or maybe, I don't know, primarily in Asian culture, maybe we do like tests. This isn't a test, like a written test to say, uh, I'm going to see if you pass or fail. Now, there are tests like that, but that's not the testing I'm talking about. It's not a pass-fail test. This test that I'm talking about is for God's people who God loves, and it's a test to say, I want to reveal the quality of your faith, and I also want to shape your faith. In other words, it's not a pass-fail test. It's a test to discern what do you really believe, the sincerity of it, the quality of it, the genuineness of your faith. You know, so for example, you know, just even yesterday, I, uh, with a family, was watching uh, Aladdin, the live-action movie, and I just always like that. The, my favorite scene is when, if you know the movie, you know, Aladdin takes Jasmine onto the magic carpet, they fly, and the theme song comes in, and it's just a wonderful, beautiful scene. But I always remember that first scene before they go onto the magic carpet. What does he say? He says to Jasmine, reaches out his hand, do you trust me? And she says, is it safe? And he says, of course it is. Do you trust me? And she takes his hand. They go on this magic carpet ride. <laughs> Essentially, when God tests his people, it's not just a pass-fail because you already passed in the gospel of Jesus. You're in. You're part of his family. But his testing is to reveal and to shape. Not to pass-fail your life, but to reveal and shape your life, your, the, the quality of your faith. Do you really trust him? When suffering and setbacks come, when his plan goes a little bit different from yours, he's going to test you to say, do you really believe when the rubber hits the road that God is there? Can you trust God in those very deep moments, in everything that you do? Now, it's interesting that in this precisely three areas that God promised Abraham, that's exactly where God tests Abraham, in those three areas that he gave Abraham to leave his homeland and his country. So, for example, he says, I'm going to give you a descendant, numerous as the stars, and I'm going to have a seed. In your seed, your great-great-grandchild is going to bless the nations. And after he promises this, what does God do? He tests Abraham in that. Sarah goes to the age of 90 before she bears him a child. And do you realize that his grandchild, Rebecca, his daughter-in-law, went 20 years more after that before she bore a son? And Abraham's thinking, well, I need children, I need grandchildren. He waited for a long time for his why Sarah to have a kid, and then when he was waiting for grandchildren, he had to wait another 20 years. Do you realize that it would have been about 160-year-old Abraham? That's how old he was, the long, painstaking wait for Sarah, and now he's waiting another hundreds of 20 years for his son's wife to have a child. I mean, that's a testing of his faith. How long does he have to wait before he sees great-grandchildren? By the way, this is probably something you can relate to. Because if you're married and you don't have kids, you probably have pressure from your parents to maybe have kids. And this tests his faith. Think about Abraham again. And he says, I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. Now, Abraham goes and he goes to Canaan, and now there's famine in the land, so he's already been tested. But the Lord just says, go, and I'll take you there. And not only does he go to a country he doesn't know, but he's a stranger there. He has to set up a tent. He doesn't own it. 
There's no deed that gets transferred over there. Even when Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies at, one, at the age of 127, Abraham still had to purchase a lot for her burial site. His faith is tested in the land. Even, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11, it reminds us that Abraham died without fulfilling the promises of entering into the land. And what about the third promise, the nation? God says, I'm going to make a nation full of descendants and your seed will bless everyone. But when you look at the faith of Abraham in his life and journey down the road, he was never a blessing to other nations. In fact, one example, when he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah later on in Genesis 17, 18, he intercedes and he pleads with God, save them, please spare Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know the story, what happens? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you put yourself in Adam's place, I'm supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but my neighbors are stealing my son-in-law a lot. They steal his well so he has no water. He tries to intercede and save the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't listen and he destroys those cities. What in the world is happening is probably what Abraham's thinking. I have to wait decades and decades to have a grandchild. I'm entering to the land, but I can't even buy a plot of land to bury my passed away wife. And I'm supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but God doesn't listen. And my neighbors are always stealing from me. Like, what would you do? His faith was tested. Here's the application, friends. What about you? What, what about you? One of the applications here, as hard and deep as it is, is to understand that you live and view your life from a biblical lens. And it doesn't mean that testing is easy or suffering is good, but it should help you to flip your perspective and say, when life doesn't go according to your plan, when things happen in your life that create suffering and hardship, there may be a chance that God is the author of your life and he may be testing you not so that you can pass or fail, but so that he can reveal and shape your life. See, even in this narrative, when you look at Genesis chapter 12, you know, it captures this idea of life as a journey, which is what you're going through. Life is a journey. It's an adventure. And things don't happen the way that you want. And the author of Genesis 12, he captures that journey. The way he does it grammatically is that he has a lot of transition verses, a lot of transition words. So over and over again, you'll see that through 10 and 20, the pace of the narrative is quick. It says, now there's famine in land. Then when he was about to enter Egypt, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, so this will then happen. When Abraham entered Egypt, when the prince of Pharaoh, so everything is going quickly. It's like, when this happened, when this happened, you know, he's moving it really quickly in sort of the staccato fashion because life is a journey and saying that Abraham is on a journey and so are you. And this is the point. The many transitions of your life, now this is happening. So this is what will happen when this happens in your life. It says that life is a journey. It moves quick and it moves fast. And when it doesn't go according to your plan, what about your testing? The sincerity of your faith, the genuineness. See, it's tough, isn't it? Because you know, there's different kinds of tests and suffering. So you could... You can have a loved one that unexpectedly uh, gets cancer and gets sick. And it's hard just to say, and I never say this to the person that is counseling, hey, God's testing you right now. That's the horrible way to do it. Now, you never do that. But in some ways, in the big picture, it's to say, in the moments of suffering, can you trust that God is still good as you control? You know, maybe you didn't get that promotion at work or you get laid off. 
There's an immense amount of stress. It doesn't mean just because you're Christian that it feels good. There's a lot of stress on providing for a family and being able to use money for the kingdom. You lose your job, didn't get the promotion. It hits in your gut. You get, there's an identity crisis. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't mean that just because you know God's testing you that all of a sudden you're happy. No, it doesn't discount the hurt of it, but does it change the way you think? to say that, yeah, God is in control. Can you still trust that God is still reaching his hand out like Aladdin? Do you trust me? I know it's hard. Can you flip the perspective on life upside down? Because many of us, especially in the past couple of years of COVID and all the diversity and dichotomy in the, in the culture and the nation, a lot of events and realities and circumstances are happening now that doesn't resonate with the promises that you believe in the future. Isn't that the case? There's a lot of hurt and disappointment now. And that's captured here. It says, now there is a famine. Right now, 800 miles, you get to the promised land. Now I'm going to test you. Now it's going to be different. Now I'm going to see, Abraham, do you really believe in me? Because there's a famine in the land. And that may be true of you too. Now something's hurtful. Now something is different. Now something's disappointing. Now you're entering into the next phase of your life. Maybe that's you. And can you see this perspective that will give you a hope to say in the difficulties of your life, maybe God is testing you to reveal and to shape the sincerity of your life. The application is this, friends. How do you view the nows of your life? Now, this one counselor, Pastor Paul Tripp, has said this. If you haven't asked this now question, you're probably not breathing or you're seriously comatose. Because if you're living life, nothing goes according to our plan. Even the small matters, now something is different. Here's the question, what is God doing now when it seems to be different from what I expected? And this is what Tripp says, which is absolutely right. The now of your life was not intended to be comfortable. The nows of your life was intended to be transformational. No, marriage is a great example for those of us who are married. Marriage is a daily battle. <laughs> marriage is great, but it's a, it's a daily challenge to be gracious and understanding and communicate well and be an agent and a channel of grace because husband and wife that are brought into one flesh, there's a lot of opportunity for difficulty. There's a lot of hurt and brokenness in many of our marriages, if we're just honest about this. What do you do about the now of your marriage? Well, one thing is to say that the now of your marriage, the now of your circumstances, was never meant to be blissful or comfortable. But even in Abraham, verse 10, the now was to be transformational. He's going to use this to test you, to reveal and to shape your life. The Apostle Peter said it this way in chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. He says, in this you rejoice, which is pretty crazy. In your suffering, you rejoice in this. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, so it's not a pass-fail, it's a reveal and shape, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And basically, Peter, he's basically being like a, a, a he's basically like a, a metallurgy. You know, he's taking, he's saying basically you and I, we're this unattractive iron ore, you know, it's dirty, it's not attractive, but when suffering comes, it'll shape and reveal the purity and the beauty of your faith. So that pressure in suffering, the testing, 
will apply pressure in your life so that when you live through this, you come out like a shining diamond. That's your life. That's the perspective. That's what Abraham is trying to teach us. And as hard as that is to kind of apply, one thing about the Bible that's encouraging is that it's honest about how we stumble. And so even though Abraham's being tested, he didn't really rise to the occasion. Father Abraham, the forefather of the faith, he stumbles a lot. Sometimes, secondly, in the second point, you stumble too. Now let's look at the situation that Abraham stumbles. Now he goes back to Egypt. Keep in mind, God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. He's taking matters into his own hand. You know, when there's famine in Canaan, he's going to go where the bread is, which is in Egypt. He makes that decision autonomously, and he goes there, but Abraham is a smart dude, and he's saying, if I go there, Sarah, you're so beautiful. By the way, you're automatically thinking Western beauty. We don't know if she's just physically beauty, beautiful. It could have been his integrity, her character. Beauty back then may be understood differently than today, but she was beautiful. She was absolutely stunning. Abraham knows this, so he's trying to be conniving. He's trying to play a little bit of trickery. And this is what he says in verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me. Look how self-centric it is. Go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, even that language is so disappointing. He's, he's about himself, and maybe a lot of husbands are like that. You know, I'm going to go for me, for your sake. Because of you, I'll be okay. Because he's going to connive, he's going to be manipulative, he's going to be deceptive. Now, here's what's going on. It's a difficult passage. You know, what, what is, why does he have to tell Sarah to be the sister? Well, there's the most negative view is that Abraham is completely selfish. He knew Sarah would be stolen from him, taken away, knew that she would probably have to commit adultery in the palace, but at least he could still live. So he's just trying to save his own butt. No, he's just watching out for himself. That's the most negative view. Abraham knew everything. The more positive view that commentators have is saying that, you know, Abraham, he's thinking, I need to keep the promises of God alive. Me and Sarah, we got to stay together so we can have a kid. Because through my kid, we'll keep the promises alive. My descendants will inherit the land. My seed will bless the nations. So he's trying to think and be faithful to God. And some commentators in the positive view say that Abraham knew that Sarah or thought that Sarah would be okay. Because even in verse 15, when it says Sarah was taken, that doesn't necessarily mean in the Hebrew that Sarah had physical intimacy with the king or Pharaoh. That doesn't mean that they actually had physical relationships. In fact, one commentator, Alan Ross, has said this, in the royal kingdom and house, it probably took many, many months before Sarah could even be presented before Pharaoh. Now, Esther in the palace in the book of Esther may be an example of this. So it's not as if they take Sarah and automatically she gets presented to the king. There's a process. There's, there's a diligence there. So the positive view is to say that Abraham knew and thought that Sarah would be okay. Her life wouldn't be at stake. She wouldn't have to commit adultery. It would take months before Sarah would be presented before Pharaoh. Then he could devise a plan. My take on this to understand how Abraham stumbles, I think it's probably like you and me. It's a little bit mixed. You're smart. You're thinking through this. You're trying to make a faithful, a faithful move. But at the same time, you're a little bit self-centric. You're a little bit self-concentrated. I don't think Abraham thought that Sarah would be brought up to Pharaoh. I mean, that's basically saying the president of the country is going to take your wife. I don't think he thought it was going to go that far. But I think he also is trying to be savvy because if you know Genesis, 
Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, so it was sort of a small lie, but still a full lie. But there was a practice back in that ancient Near Eastern context in which a husband could adopt a wife as a sister. I know it sounds weird today, but it was a common practice. And the reason was because if you could adopt your wife as a sister, as patriarchal and chauvinistic as that sounds, it actually increases her social status. And then if they come into the land of Egypt, if Abraham is Sarah's brother, in order to take Sarah, they would have to negotiate with Abraham. There would have to be a bargaining table. If Abraham was just the husband of Sarah, they could easily kill him off. That's just the way the family culture worked back then. So maybe that's a little bit mixed. He's trying to buy time. He's trying to finagle the law a bit. And just tell them you're my sister so that I have time to devise a plan. And I don't think he ever thought that Sarah would go up to the kingdom of Pharaoh's bedroom. I don't think he thought that far. Here's the problem, friends. Abraham stumbles, and so do you. The problem is essentially this. Abraham is figuring out a solution without God in the picture. Now, Hebrew, the Old Testament has a lot of weird things, but let me try to show you why that's the essence of the problem. In Hebrew narrative in the Old Testament, there's a lot of geography. Now, I've already mentioned this. When the Pharaoh comes, when the Egyptians come, when you enter the land, there's a narrative that moves quickly. And a lot of times, these authors in the Old Testament place emphasis on geography. And if you look at them, if you map out Abraham's journey, is basically from Canaan to Egypt back to Canaan. Canaan to Egypt to Canaan. And that tells us this was basically a U-turn. That journey, that framing symbolizes Abraham's failure to progress in his life. Canaan to Egypt, back to Canaan. It's a spiritual pilgrimage, a journey out of God's promises into Egypt, back into God's promises. It accomplished essentially nothing. The other thing you know is that when God spoke to Abraham in verses 1 to 9, God was speaking. He says, leave your country, leave your people. There'll be a promise of seed. I'll be with you always. But in these verses, notice who's actually silent in verses 10 to 20. God is. His silence is probably an indication that he disapproves of what Abraham is doing because Abraham is figuring out a solution autonomously without God. It's interesting because the sudden transition is amazing to see that it's possible for the same person to make a move from the plane of faith to the plane of fear. Now, back in the beginning verses, Abraham, man, he was strong. He was building altars in the presence of his enemies. He was worshiping in a pagan land. Now he's asking his wife to lie, to endanger herself, her virtue, her reputation, also that he could get out by the skin of his teeth. Because you see, friends, even the best of us, the heroes of the faith, are sinners and needed saved by grace. This is the thing that I want you to reflect upon, myself too. Going to Egypt for Abraham wasn't so much about disobeying God. It was more about neglecting God. Sometimes the lack of faith doesn't mean that we hate God or disobey God. It's that we forget about God. Sometimes we think that hating God is worse. I don't know. It's hard to adjudicate that. But I think just as bad as hating God and equally sinful is neglecting God or forgetting God because you live autonomously. That's why authors like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton said that love and hate are actually 
one another and mutually form each other. They're inseparable. Love and hate. Because the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is forgetfulness. It's apathy. Apathy meaning without passion, without concern. Because if you hate someone, at least it's significant enough that you care, that you're concentrated. So love and hate are actually inseparable, but the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. It's forgetfulness. Now think about it if you ever worked or had any meeting. You know, it, you bring an idea to a meeting and it gets rejected by the boss. That doesn't feel good. What if you bring an idea to the meeting and no one even listens to you and you're neglected, you're downplayed? That also hurts, but it stings a little bit differently, isn't it? Because it's one thing to be rejected, but it's one thing to be neglected. It's a little bit different. One of the most hated men in baseball, Reggie Jackson, in an interview, they say, now, what do you think about all the booing when you take the field? And he said this famously, if you ever followed him, well, they don't boo a nobody. <laughs> because if you love and hate someone, at least it's a presence in your life that matters. But when you're neglected, when you're forgotten about, when you're apathetic, that stings a little bit differently. What about you, friends, brothers and sisters? How, are you apathetic towards God? You may be thinking, well, I'm not sinning, even though that's probably not the case. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not committing adultery. But are you apathetic? In the everyday decisions of your life, does God make a difference in how you love people, how you talk about people, about how you show grace and forgiveness to your spouse, about how you raise your child in parenting to say, I want you ultimately to love Jesus more than you love anything else in this world? How you think about your finances, your vacations? How do you think about missions, the trajectory of life? How do you begin to think about the big, deep divisions and factors and realities in the world where it leads or relegates itself to the economy or to social justice? How do you, do you begin to think about those issues from a God perspective or are you apathetic, neglecting? Now, our vision statement here at New Life Press is to impact Orange County by making gospel-centered, compassionate, missions-minded disciples. Disciples mean students of Jesus, which means that the greatest point of our vision statement is to get people through these doors and out so that whenever they leave these doors, God is never forgotten in the everyday decisions of your life. That's what we have to learn from Abraham and his stumbling. But here's the good news. Even if you stumble and you forget God, he'll use surprising ways to bring you back to him because he's faithful and he's good and he's gracious. See, in this story in verses 10 to 20, the main character, the pivotal character, is not Abraham. It's actually his wife, Sarah. She's the channel of blessing to Abraham. She's the channel of judgment to Pharaoh. Look at the blessing in verse 16. It says, For her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This was a common practice. But it was for her sake. In other words, on behalf of her, Abraham was blessed. And he was blessed immensely so that when they go back to Canaan, he went back a really wealthy man. Now, even if you do a study on male donkeys and all these camels and female donkeys and sheep and oxen, you know, camels, that was you know, the Lexus and BMW. That was like the Tesla of all the animals back then. He got a lot for the sake of Sarah. But then you look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh with his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So the blessings came through Sarah, 
and the judgment of righteousness came through Sarah. See, in this instance, in this story, friends, the pivotal character of Sarah, that's so surprising. You thought Father Abraham would be the man. No, he actually was the imbecile. Father Abraham was saved by Mother Sarah. God uses Sarah, who in that culture didn't have much influence, not as much status, not as much power, not as much clout, because the system and culture didn't allow women to thrive in that way. She had her beauty for sure, but she had everything else against her. But God continues his plan of salvation through Sarah. He fulfills his promise to Abraham through Sarah. Because of Sarah, Abraham was blessed. Because of Sarah, Pharaoh let her go because judgment came. It was all because of Sarah. And because of that, Sarah could come back to Abraham. They will have children. They'll inherit the land. They'll eventually have great, great, great grandchildren, one of whom will be this guy named Jesus Christ. And all that plan has happened because God used, surprisingly, Sarah. Even in the verses, in verse 14, when the Egyptians view her, she's objectified, she's marginalized. Verse 14, she's just a woman. She's dehumanized. But in God's eyes, she always has a name. Sarah. God uses the people in the way the world doesn't. The world will call her a woman. God will call her a daughter. His kingdom comes through the least and expected of all people. And that's how the Bible works, doesn't it? Over and over again in the Bible, it's not the loved woman through whom salvation comes. It's always the girl that no one wanted. It was always Leah, not Rachel. It was always Hannah. It was Sarah that the, the kingdom continues, the woman who's too old to have children. It's never the person that you would think according to the world and the culture. It's never the rich is always the poor. It's never the first is always the last. It's never the oldest one that receives all inheritance. If you look at the genealogy, it's always the younger one. It's always Jacob. It's always Isaac. The younger brother always inherits everything. Over and over again, all the way through the Bible, salvation always comes through the weak. It always comes through the unwanted, the marginalized, the one that the world says is not worthy of my time, but God uses that, the rejected, in order to further his plan. That's just how the gospel works, which implies that that's how we should work and how we live. Salvation ultimately comes through weakness. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, didn't come in political and economic might, but came as a carpenter, lived among the lowly, fellowshiped with the prostitutes, learned from those who were the world, that were rejected by the world. He came to this earth like a little suffering servant, went to the cross like a criminal, died for our sins, and that's exactly what saved the world because God always uses the weak, the humble, the meek, the rejected, the marginalized. This is the point, friends. The gospel, Jesus dying for you and raising from the dead, comes to you, and this is our application. The gospel causes us to look at God's plan and say that I myself, we admit, I'm not actually put together. That's the application. I admit that I'm weak. Saying, God, you're going to have to relate to me in love because of what Jesus did. Because I haven't earned or merited anything. Exactly the opposite. As one guy, Walter Brueggemann, has once said, why does God work this way? Why does God always anoint the younger or the ostracized or the less beautiful or the unwanted? Why does God always put his hand on the rejected, the unimportant one, the impotent one, the one that the world rejects but God wants? Why does God work that way? Well, Brueggemann says, it's to show that life is all about grace and all about his love. And that's how he works through you. Not through manipulation and power, but through humility and gentleness. That's how he moves the plan forward. 
It was through Abraham's weakness that he wasn't actually very faithful, but God used Sarah in surprising ways to continue the plan. And Abraham, he was a man of faith, as we'll journey together. He was a man to continue to follow the promises, but in his weakest moments, God saved him in surprising ways through his wife, Sarah. You know, if the idea of Abraham leaving Egypt, going back to the Cain, the promised land of Canaan sounds familiar, if you know your Bible, it's because it is a familiar story. There's always a story about God's people being hurt and oppressed, leaving Egypt, the Egyptians and entering the promised land. Well, we, said, we saw that here in Genesis 12, but Abraham and his entourage leaving Egypt into the promised land was just a foreshadow of a greater salvation, a greater plan in which God later would use Moses to free the Israelites from the Egyptians and enter the promised land. So you notice a couple of things here as we close. It's a famine that brings Abram into the land of Egypt, just as it was a famine that brings the brothers of Joseph later into the land of Egypt. Notice that God visits plagues on the house of Pharaoh, just like in Exodus, God visits plagues on the house of Pharaoh. Notice that Pharaoh gives God covenant wealth and riches and blessings, just as the Egyptians gave to God's people upon their departure wealth and riches in Genesis 15. There's a parallel for us to understand that the event of the life of Abraham, in which he exodus and leaves Egypt, prefigures a greater redemption that God through Moses will lead another exodus of Israel back into the promised land. And that story points to you and I, because we're not leaving the captivity of the Egyptians into the promised land of Canaan. But Abraham leaving Egypt into Canaan, Israelites leaving Egypt into Canaan, points to the New Testament people of you and me leaving the brokenness and the failures and the shackles of our sin through the exodus of our sin into the land of the kingdom of God, into heaven. Not through Abraham, not through Moses, but through Jesus Christ. We inherit all that was promised to Abraham, not because Abraham was faithful, nor was Sarah faithful, nor because Moses was faithful, but because Jesus Christ was faithful. And when we hook our wagon onto Jesus, he literally has led us into the promised land. And that'll help you to have a different perspective on all the testing that'll shape and influence your faith here today, friends. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for the grace that you have shown us in your Son. Thank you for being honest, God, about life thousands of years ago, but also for modern people like us today that you are unchangeable and you're faithful. And all that you have said in your word is still relevant, encouraging, challenging, and applicable for people today. So Lord, thank you that you love us enough to shape us and to reveal our faith so that we could grow in Christ-likeness. Thank you for fulfilling all the promises that we see in Abraham in your son Jesus and that we have all received by faith all the promises that you've given because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, God. May we worship and respond appropriately because of who you are. Thank you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.